Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week, we're getting nerdy about the genetics of dog coat color and type with two breeders, G. Kalsa and Alicia Hobson. G has a master's degree in microbiology and biochemistry and has done additional work in genetics. She has bred and trained working dogs most of her adult life. She's the founder of Midwoofery, a highly respected science-based educational resource for responsible dog breeders. Alicia is the founder of the Bearded Retriever Project, which is developing a breed based on poodles, Labrador retrievers, and golden retrievers with the goal of creating great companions. Both love teaching and are very good at it and have a lot to teach about the genetics behind dog coats. Uh, so welcome, Alicia and G, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on with me. Thank you for having us. This is going to be fun. Yeah, thank you, Jessica. So normally I start out, oh, this is not one of the questions I gave you guys for prep, but normally I start out asking people uh, to tell us about their dogs, what dogs they live with, because you're both breeders. It's possible you're going to have a lot of dogs. So why don't we start with G? How many dogs do you have? Um, I have three dogs. Oh, that's easy enough. So why don't you tell us a little bit? <laughs> Sometimes there was one person who was like, well, I have 15. And I was like, okay, no, let's take a summary. <laughs> um, Gobi is four and um, she's my my main girl. She's my main companion dog. Um, and she's, I love her because she's um, super, super quiet and laid back in the house and an incredible athlete outside. And she knows the difference. Nice. And then I've got two adolescents, Wooly and Bally. Um, and they're a lot of fun also. And Alicia, how about you? Do you have a number of dogs that you could go over quickly? Yeah, I've got three and I co-own one. Um, the three that I have in my home though are an eight-year-old standard poodle and she's very sassy. I've got a four-year-old bearded retriever and he's just a sweetheart. And then I've got a two-year-old bearded retriever slash golden doodle girl. And she's just a lot of fun. She's really enthusiastic. Her name is Sailor. So you should probably let people know just quick what a bearded retriever is, because not everybody is going to know that. Yeah, it's some combination of poodle, golden retriever, and Labrador retriever. And my bearded retrievers don't have Labrador content yet because it's really hard with the coat traits. But um, mine right now are just combinations of poodle and golden retriever. But I hope to bring Labrador into my line pretty soon. Perfect. So that's going to be something that we'll definitely talk about in this interview about coat traits and, and why you would want to bring in certain coat traits and have and breed away from others. Um, but I guess I wanted to start out just at a, a basic level of talking about how complicated are coat genetics? Like, is it is it pretty straightforward? Is there a lot going on there? There's a lot going on. Um, coat genetics are very complicated. Um, once you get into it, I think they're kind of fun. It, they're like a puzzle to figure out, um, but they are very complicated. And they did make me, when I first started um, looking at canine coat genetics, I did have to go back to some of my genetics textbooks. Yeah. 
I would say coming from a, the perspective of someone who studies behavioral genetics, I would say coat genetics are probably as complicated as they can be with us sort of understanding all of the genes. And when you mm -hmm. get more complicated than that, like into behavior stuff, it's because we don't even know what the genes are. But with coat genetics, mm -hmm. for a lot of the cases, we actually know what the genes are and what they're doing, but not all of the cases. Would right. you agree with that? Right. Yes. And, it, you know, it's a little bit easier with coat genetics than with behavior because it's easier to identify. Um, yes. Yes. You know, type. Yeah. Is it black? Is it white? Yeah. Right. Right. So how much of this stuff can we test for with with genetic testing? Most, Most of it. it. Yeah. I was hearing I remember when I got into genetics, we didn't have a test for how dark uh red would be so golden retrievers are technically red and they go from very blonde to fairly dark red and we at least i think genetics has at least started to find where that is controlled although i don't know that there's a test for that yet but that's one of the few things right so like if you wanted to know you know like what kind of black and and stuff like that um but let's talk about what that means so why would you want to do a genetic test on a dog to understand stuff about its its coat color because you can just look and see what its coat color and its type is right so why do you need to do a genetic test there's a lot of stuff you can't see by looking at them um, well tell us about it sometimes people will do it because they're trying to avoid a specific color that's usually what i see um in like for instance the doodle community a lot of people want to avoid having an all black litter which I really like, I like the black litter. So I think it's kind of sad that people try so hard to avoid it. But if they breed a really beautiful cream colored poodle, for instance, with a really pretty chocolate colored doodle, and then they get a litter where every single puppy is all black, most of the time they're pretty shocked by this. They didn't even know that that was an option. But it turns out the cream color and the brown color are both recessive colors. And so unless both parents carry for both of those colors, none of the puppies are going to turn out looking that way. And so I think people just don't like to be surprised. They want to anticipate what's going to be produced when they pair two dogs together. There, there are yeah. also some health ramifications of color. That's true. Yeah. Can we have some examples of that? Sure. The, the two most prominent ones are Merle and Piebald. Um, I think that's Piebald is known in Poodles and Doodles as Party. So um, both of them are associated with um, deafness and uh, Merle is also asso associated with mycophthalmia, which is a small eye and the small eye itself isn't a problem, but there are problems associated with that specific uh, anatomical type. And there's yeah. also color dilution alopecia that a lot of people yes. want to avoid as well. Yes, thank you, I forgot about that. Yeah, those are great examples. So. So it might be then a good time to sort of talk through why you could have a dog who was Merle and that is okay, but why you would not want to breed a Merle to another Merle. And we haven't talked about um, homozygous versus heterozygous, having one allele for something versus having two alleles for something. Would one of you want to sort of take a shot at that? Because there may be some listeners who haven't, who haven't absorbed that that bit of genetics yet. Sure, Alicia, do you wanna do it or do you want me to? You go for it, G. Okay, so um, 
every, if you're talking about a simple trait, which is a one gene trait, you have um, two alleles for each one, one comes from each parent. And when you have, when each of the alleles, each of the genes on a chromosome is the same, so you have the same one from the mom and the same one from the dad, it's called homozygous. And when they're different, it's called heterozygous. So when I have a Merle dog, mm -hmm. um, what, how did I get a, a Merle dog? Is he gonna be homozygous, heterozygous? So you, it can be, it could be um, one or both. Um, with Merle, Merle's a little different. When we think about genetics in dogs, most of us are familiar with, um, with health testing, which is really important. And most things that we test for health-wise are recessive genes. That means that, that two copies, that they need to be homozygous for the um, deleterious mutation in order for the disease to be a risk or to show. Um, but with a dominant trait, you only need one. And Merle is dominant. So you only need one gene for Merle to show. And if you have two genes, you have what's uh, colloquially, commonly, <laughs> commonly known as a double Merle. Um, and that's where you see the, the, that's where you have the highest risk is with the double Merle. And the, the reason you have the risk with the double Merle is pretty much the same as with piebald because when you have double Merle, you have a lot of white on the dog. And when you have um, piebald, you can, depending on the type of piebald and whether or not it's homozygous or heterozygous, you can have a lot of white on the dog. And it's the white that causes the, that can cause the problem. It doesn't always cause the problem. But, um, you know, we think about pigment as just being color, but, but pigment also has a function in the body um, and it has a function, for example, in the inner ear. And when that pigment isn't there in that inner ear, the cochlea doesn't work properly and you, you have hearing loss. And yes, which is actually, it's, I feel like it's, it's so cool because it's the, um, the pigment in the hairs in the inner ear and it's pigment in the hairs on the body. Like we don't think of there as being hair in the inner ear, but I always Or, or that, it having a function, connection. right? Right, or, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's neat. Yeah. It's really so cool. Then, it is. So then if I want to be producing Merle's, how do I do that safely? You read a lot. <laughs> and there are double Merle's that are safe. Um, and there are single Merle's that are more risky. So, it, so Merle is, Merle is a really crazy gene. Um, Merle is one of the most unstable genes out there. It's, it, it changes um, not only with every generation, so the length of the Merle gene changes with every generation, but it can also be different in different cells in the body. So you can have a Merle gene of one length in one cell and the cell next to it can have a Merle gene of a totally different length. And you can actually have a mosaic that way. I actually did not know that. How common is that in dogs? Um, it, I, I think that the research is showing that it's more common than we realized. Yeah, it's one of those things that you don't know until you look for it, right? You don't think to look for right. it. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, but, so in, in, so that might be a good reason why you might want to do a genetic test then, right? Because you have right. a dog who is a Merle um, and you want to know who you can breed him to safely. Correct. Or and you so might the have a dog that doesn't look like a Merle, but maybe it right. is. Great point. Great point. So that that's so um, the length of the Merle gene determines the amount of dilution. So when a, a number of labs these days, when you do a Merle test, will tell you how long the gene is. And the longer the gene, the more likely you are to have dilution. So that's one thing to look at. 
And when you're breeding two dogs, the length of the gene determines whether or not it's safe to breed two merles together. So you can breed two shorter merle genes together and be safer than if you bred two longer merle genes together. And it gets and you, pretty complex. Yeah, it, it does. It was one of those things that was, I feel like, a, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, we felt like it was pretty straightforward. You just don't breed a merle to another merle and you're safe. Right. And now right. we're starting to learn more about it. Can you tell us what you mean by dilution? So dilution is just, um, let's say, so I'm assuming everybody knows what Merle looks like, but in case you don't, it, it kind of has a patchwork effect on a coat. And I'm just, there are different types of Merle, so they all look a little bit different. So I'm talking about the classic Merle that we're, most of us are familiar with. So it's just a random patchwork on a coat. So if a dog, the base color of the coat is black, then the coat will randomly be patches of black and various shades of gray. Um, and the areas where it's gray are where it's diluted. So the black pigment isn't fully expressed. And then if you have um, a, a really long Merle gene or a, a modifier like Harlequin um, or a double Merle, the dilution can be so strong that it's white, not even gray. Mm -hmm. And that's where you start to see most of the health issues. And do we see dilution in other types of coats? Maybe yeah. solid colored yes. coats? Can yes. you tell us a little about that? Um, we see dilution in piebald or party, um, and there's also, as Alicia mentioned, the, the um, actual dilution gene, which can uh, cause alopecia. So some breeds are, for the most part, dilute, right? Like um, Weimaraners? Yes. Um, and so that's, I guess, the way of thinking about that is that it just would take a darker coat color and then if you have the dilution gene, it changes it to a lighter coat color. So from, I forget how they all go, but like black to sort of gray and brown to a more like champagne color. Oh, Alicia, yeah. you want to take this one? Yeah. And you know, I think that even brown is considered a dilution of black, technically. Hmm. So um, when you're diluting black, you'll get a bluish gray color. When you're diluting brown, you'll get what they often will call Isabella, which is kind of like a dusty grayish brown color. Um, you can also see, I'm trying to think what other colors do we see dilute in G? Well, we don't see, uh, progressive graying isn't dilute per se, but it has a right. similar effect. That's true. Um, yeah. Oh, like in bearded collies, for example, where they're born one color, but they start changing to gray pretty quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we technically refer to as dilution because they're born dark black. It just happens right. progressively as they age. Mm -hmm. Right, which is what G was saying is that it's sort of a different a uh, a different concept, but yeah. And dilution related. will also affect the skin, not just the hair. So you'll see the dilution in like the leather on their nose too, and often their mm -hmm. eye color. Mm -hmm. And so maybe a good time to talk a little bit about what dilution alopecia is and what that looks like. Yeah, um, dilution alopecia happens when it's almost like the structure of the hair becomes weakened because the pigment cells, I believe they're just a little bit further apart than usual, which makes them look lighter. But then the hair itself is not as structurally sound. And so they'll break off and then they'll stop growing in. And you'll have a dog with either bald patches or really, really thin hair. It's just a really poor coat. So how much of a risk is that if you are breeding to um, 
if you are breeding in the dilution allele because you want to have some of those lighter, more interesting colors, how much of a risk is there that you're going to get the dilution alopecia along the skin alopecia along with it? It kind of depends on the breed. I mean, Weimaraners, they don't have a problem with dilution that I've seen at least, but almost every poodle I've seen that's been dilute has had color dilution alopecia. It's a great problem in like Labrador retrievers when they breed their silver labs. I think Dobermans tend to have a problem with it too. And yeah, there's I mean, actually a similar effect going back to the Merle and the piebald um, where you'll see deafness and potentially eye problems in certain breeds, but not in others. So there are breeds that have Merle where you see virtually no problems and others where they're, they're much more endemic. Isn't that yeah, interesting? interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would guess that there's there's some risk factor elsewhere in the genome mm -hmm. for the eye problems and then that interacts with the Merle. Mm -hmm. So much to discover. <laughs> so so what let's see. So what are some other color um some other color stuff that you might test for? What about tricolor? So tricolor isn't a single color. Um, and tricolor is actually a lot more complex than people realize. And, and so with color genetics, we have something called epistasis. Um, and epistasis is where um, one gene controls another or can block another. And so we, we have a lot of, and if you look at these, these epistatic genes as gateways, we have a lot of gateways where color can turn on or off the possibility to express other colors. So it's like this whole cascade sometimes that you have to follow. And to get tricolor, um, you've got, first of all, the, um, the party gene that will cause the white on the tri, um, but then you have the, um, the K locus and the A locus that will cause the, um, the phantom or the, the tan point. And then you have whether or not the dog has a black base or a brown base coat um, as to whether or not the main coat is that color. It gets really, it gets really complicated. Like I said, I, I think of it kind of like a puzzle to figure out. Yeah. Mm. And you've got the A locus that determines what the pattern is going to be, assuming mm -hmm. the K locus lets it happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to get a tricolor, you have to have um, a dog that is not red or cream. So isn't little e, little e. Um, and a dog that expresses, so the dog will express either um, black or brown for the base coat, the base coat and the points, which are the, like the nose and the um, inner eye and the foot pads. Um, and then you have to have, you ha the permission has to be there by the K locus to express the A locus. So, so the K locus has to be KY, KY to allow the expression of the A locus, which is the agouti locus, which can express the tan point, it can express fawn, it can express sable, it can express um, wild sable, so there, or it can express black. So there, there are, um, there's a whole cascade to follow there. Yeah, coat colors, when I'm trying to explain epistasis, um, when I'm teaching genetics, I tend to use coat color to do it because it's, it's such a good example of, well, if you have these two genes, interacting in this way, you can have three different coat colors. And if you have three genes interacting, you can have even more. So it's part mm -hmm. of how coat color genetics is so interesting and then so complex of, you know, how all these different things work together. Mm -hmm. So coat colors are, you know, aside from testing for something that is related to, um, 
a disease or some kind of a, a, a physiological issue, they're less important, I think, in a lot of ways than coat type. Um, colors are nice to look at, but coat type can have some more direct effects on the welfare of the humans in the household. Uh, would one of you want to talk about different coat types a little bit and and what how different people like different kinds and what they're good for? Sure. So I guess one coat type would be a smooth coat. That's a dog that is not burnished and has short hair. Um, that Can you tell us what tell us what furnished means. Oh sure. Furnished is where they've got the longer hair growing on their face and on their paws, and it can affect the length of the entire coat altogether. So it looks like a beard, right? among other, yes. Uh, some, on some dogs, it looks like a scruffy mustache and beard and eyebrows, and on some dogs, it'll grow really, really long. Like, for instance, on a Lhasa Opso, they'll have like a drop coat where the hair on their face goes all the way down almost to the floor. Or there are terriers that will just have the little scruffy wire hair coat. The wire hair coat is a combination of short hair and furnishings. A flat coat is a long haired dog that does not have the furnishings. So like a golden retriever or a border collie, they'll have the smooth face, the short hair on the paws, but long hair on the rest of the body. And then long hair plus furnishings will often make what they'll call a drop coat where the hair on the whole entire body just keeps growing and growing and growing until you cut it. And that's often, some people refer to that as hair as opposed to fur. And you've just been saying hair, right. um, but that's one piece of terminology that I've heard that, um, you know, oh, poodles, poodles have hair and, you know, labs or goldens have fur, but that is the difference that we're actually talking about. That's, right. it's, it's really all hair, but we yeah. use that terminology in that particular case. Right. The growth cycle is different. Like with a flat coat, with a golden retriever, or with a Labrador that has the shorter hair, um, their hair will grow to a certain length, and then it will all shed out. Um, usually it'll shed out during certain seasons, like fall or spring. And so we would refer to that as seasonal shedding. And you don't see that as much in the furnished coats that are long-haired as well. The wire hair coats will still shed seasonally, like the little terriers. Um, theirs will get to a certain length and then just stop growing and then it won't change again until they shed and new hair comes in or new fur. I'm definitely living through the shedding cycle right now with my um, straight unfurnished long-haired dog or one of them is she has a sort of a soft spitzy type coat and she's definitely shedding quite a bit um, which necessitates brushing right so that's one of the reasons <laughs> People might not like that. Um, although I also know that, so I also have a dog with uh, very short hair, no furnishings. He's a smooth coated border collie. And one thing I've noticed is that during the summertime, he gets chewed up by flies and mosquitoes in a way that my longer haired dogs don't. Um, and that may just be because he has um, not so much fur over the, in his groin area. And so the flies go for that, and they, but they go for his ears as well. But somehow I think, because in New, I live in New Hampshire and we have these deer flies, which are horrible, uh, mostly in like July, August. Uh, and for whatever reason, they just, I feel like they just can't make it through my other two dogs' coats. They have the long-haired coats. The flies can't make it through. But just thinking through like some of the reasons why someone might want a short-haired dog uh, versus a long-haired dog. So it's just easier just to keep up. 
Yes. <laughs> just, just as an aside, adding DHA to your dog's diet or as a supplement can help reduce the shedding. It won't stop it entirely, but it, it can improve the health of the coat and the skin to the point where it does impact shedding to a certain degree. Oh, interesting. Do we know the mechanism for why that works? I don't know the mechanism offhand. I don't know that anybody does. It just does work. That is cool. I did not know that. Um, all right. And then longer haired dogs obviously might do well in the wintertime. Um, although some short haired dogs have pretty thick coats and do fine. But then the shedding, I think, is a really big deal for a lot of people. And there's some terminology around there that um, can be contentious. So the, yes. the concept of low shedding or no shedding and hypoallergenic. So maybe we could talk through some of that. First of all, is are there any dogs that are non-shedding that just never shed? There are no mammals that are non-shedding. The, the thing is, it's really semantics. When the average person says, I have a non-shedding dog or I want a non-shedding dog, what they're saying is they want a dog that does not shed seasonally. They don't mm -hmm. want a dog whose entire coat is going to blow out every September or October. What they want is a dog whose coat will grow continuously. And just like with people, they're going to have some hairs fall out. It just, it's part of being a mammal. It just happens. But most people are just asking for one that's not going to leave hair all over the whole house every six months. Which is what reasonable. I <laughs> yeah, what I usually... Thing. What I usually tell people is that if they have a furnished dog, they're not likely to see hair on their furniture or clothes, but they may see, they will see some in the brush when they brush their dogs and they may see a little bit on the floor as opposed to seasonally shedding dogs where the hair can get everywhere. Yeah. So then what are the, uh, the grooming responsibilities that you have if you have a dog like this that's low shedding, not seasonally shedding? hair is going to be continuously growing, it's going to get pretty long. It's going to start getting tangled up. And depending on how thick that coat is, you could see quite a bit of matting if you don't brush it pretty frequently. So it's definitely a higher maintenance coat. You have to put more work into brushing it, combing it, washing it, and cutting it, as opposed to, say, like a Labrador with a short-haired coat. Or, or you can keep your um, furnished long-haired dog cut short, and that would lessen the, the grooming requirements. Oh, definitely. So how often would you have to go to a groomer then, do you think? Depends on the dog. Um, I've got a dog, for instance. I have my four-year-old Timber. He's 50-50 um, Poodle Golden Retriever. And his coat's got some kind of a modifier that we can't test for, but it affects the length of his coat. So while he does have long hair and he has furnishings, his hair will grow to about four, maybe five inches long, and then it just stops. And he sheds. Um, I'll see his hair around my house. It'll make little dust fluffies that gather in all the corners. And with his hair, it almost never mats. I can give him a haircut every six months, and it, it stops growing at about four inches long. And so he doesn't have to have a haircut every four to six weeks like my others do, like my standard poodle, for instance. If her hair isn't cut every four to six weeks, it gets really difficult to manage and it does start matting really easily. Alicia, do you think that's a product of undercoat at all? Yeah, definitely, because my poodle has a very thick undercoat 
and my bearded retriever Timber has a very thin undercoat. So part of what I think is so cool about what both of you do is that you take dogs with different types of coats and breed them multi-generationally with an understanding of the epistatic interactions of the mm -hmm. different genes yeah. to produce different coat types that are good for different situations. So we've already talked about what some of those different situations would be. Um, but Alicia, could you talk maybe a little bit more about something you said earlier on um, when you were introducing your dogs and you were talking about how some, some have coat types that you wanna keep in your program and some don't? Sure. So personally, my goal as far as coats go, I'm aiming for a low shedding coat. And it's going to be difficult for me to bring Labrador into my program because their short haired coat is dominant. The short hair is dominant and short hair will always shed seasonally. It reaches that predetermined length. And as soon as it reaches that length, it's gonna fall out and then new hair is gonna grow in to replace it. So if I bring a Labrador into my program, all of my puppies, because most of the Labradors, the vast majority will have two short haired genes. So that means all of my puppies are going to shed seasonally and it's gonna be harder to place them. So I have to be careful about how I do it. And I've been trying to find a Labradoodle because that means that some other breeder has already dealt with this and they've bred that short hair out. So I can just start working with long haired genes. It'd be easier for me. But what just, I'm trying. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a long haired furnished coat. And ideally I'd like to have two copies of furnishings because two copies of furnishings combined with long hair is the secret recipe for a low shedding coat. I use the term low shedding because everybody will jump right down your throat if you say non-shedding, even though you're trying to say not seasonally shedding. So I refer to that as low shedding. So I want two copies of furnishings. I want two copies of recessive long hair. I'm trying to breed my undercoat to be lower. I want a thinner undercoat because it's easier for people to care for. It doesn't mat up as easily. Mm -hmm. I also would like to minimize the amount of curl in my coats. So I'm trying to breed away from the curl genes so that I've got straight, long, furnished coat that does not have a profuse undercoat. That's my goal. And just out of curiosity, you're bringing labs in for, for other traits, right? Because they're not contributing, as you said, to the coat types that you're looking for, but you like labs for other reasons? Right. Labrador retrievers are like the number one service dog. They have wonderful temperament traits that they bring to the table. They have lots of great health traits and they increase the genetic diversity in the bearded retriever breed. Yeah, man, all true. So, but and they don't have an undercoat. <laughs> don't have an undercoat. Huh. So, but just to, to make the point that as complicated as breeding in the right coat is, there's all this other stuff that you have to balance as well when you're breeding behavior and, um, mm -hmm. and other health traits. Um, it is, it is not for the faint of heart. G, no, are you doing, go ahead. There are also the unknowns of gene linkage. So we don't know what other traits are linked to color traits and coat traits that we're breeding for. Yeah. Great example where, um, a lot of, people are sort of 
uh, folk wisdom that brown labs are always crazy. Chocolate labs are always crazy. And there's, um, there was actually a paper that came out a few years back. God, and I feel like it did show that there was like more, a little more hyperactivity in the chocolate labs. And um, those of us who do behavioral genetics were just like, oh, come on, there's no way, you know, it's, it's just one gene and behavior is so complicated, but it's hard to know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting but, stuff that we haven't learned yet. But gene linkage exists. I mean, right. it's there. No, for we just sure. don't I guess, know what's linked. Right, exactly. I think my point is that um, we, we know the single gene that controls uh, chocolate coat color, and mm-hmm. it could be linked to, certainly could be linked to another gene or possibly even two that have mm-hmm. an influence on behavior. But in general, no single gene has such a strong influence on behavior that you'd be able to say something like right. all chocolate labs are, are hyperactive or crazy. So that, right. that was sort of what we were, we were saying like, oh yeah, so maybe there's a gene linkage effect, but would only, you know, would only one gene affect behavior, but who knows? Um, who knows? There are yeah, other and factors I wanna... that play too, though, that would also affect that. Like for instance, the Labrador breeders who breed chocolate labs try really hard to never cross those lines with yellow labs. Mm. And they're probably trying to avoid the black labs because that's dominant and they won't get any chocolate puppies. So you'll see certain lines where certain colors have been selected for, and they try not to let the other lines in. And like, for instance, with doodles as well, I've noticed in golden doodles that the darker red golden doodles tend to have a lot more energy than the lighter cream colored doodles. Oh, interesting. That goes back to the golden retrievers. If we look at the very light colored golden retrievers, those are usually bench line, or a lot of times they come from the European lines, where the golden retrievers are really a lot more laid back and a lot more mellow. Whereas in America, the darker red golden retrievers quite often come from the field lines where they're being bred to go do field um, trials and to do bird hunting. And they want that drive. So I see a lot of difference in color that just is attributed to the lines that are used. Yeah, interesting. And, and can I muddy the, the coat genetics waters a little bit further? Yeah, go for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. In, <laughs> in addition to furnishings controlling shedding in long-haired coats, um, there's another locus called um, the shedding locus that can also affect the amount of seasonal shedding in short hair coats. Did I say that right, Alicia? Yeah. Okay. So that's the only separate... hard part about it is just that that one is kind of overridden by the furnishings gene. Right. Right. So there are some short coated breeds that are uh, that will shed less seasonally if they have one or two of these shedding genes, non-shedding genes, however you want to call it. Oh, people are going to really want you to list some examples of those breeds. Um, I do you have some... any off the top of your head? Go ahead. Yeah. Boxers. That's one of them that's considered a lower shedding, smooth coated breed. Um, they also said Shih Tzus, but Shih Tzus are furnished. So I don't think that those ones should count. And on the opposite side, they used Labrador Retrievers as an example of the higher shedding breeds. And like Great Pyrenees, those guys have so much hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think Basenjis are another example of a breed that sheds a little bit less. What about Fox Terriers? Are they lower shedding? I'm not remember. sure with those guys. I'm sure the wire hair Fox Terriers are because when you add furnishings to a coat, it right. automatically lowers the shedding level. 
it won't eliminate it. Like with the wire hair coats, they still shed seasonally, but nowhere near as much as the unfurnished breeds do. So furnishings plus short coat means a bit less shedding and furnishings plus long coat means you're definitely not, well, you're pretty definitely not getting seasonal shedding. It depends on if they have one copy of furnishings or two copies of furnishings. With one copy of furnishings, it's a gamble. Some of them hardly shed at all. Some of them will shed quite a bit like my timber. But if you've got two copies of furnishings plus long hair, it's a pretty safe bet you're not going to have any seasonal shedding. And, Which and is, with the furnished dogs, the shedding locus doesn't really matter. My highest shedding furnished dog was actually a poodle, and she had two copies of the non-shedding shedding locus, but she still, she still shed uh, um, more than any other furnished dog I've had. So it definitely suggests to me, and I've, and I've said this for other, about other things too, that if you have a particular need to have a dog that is not um, blowing its coat out seasonally, then going and working with a breeder who really knows their stuff is your better bet rather than going for a particular breed in general. Yes. Absolutely. And I have, I have a pet peeve I want to put out there. Um, Go for it. In, in any of the crossbreeds that have furnishings, there's, there's the old way of doing things that goes back to Mendelian genetics and talks about F1Bs or F2Bs being the lowest shedding. That's, that's what we used to use for information before we had genetic testing. Now you can actually test for these traits. So, so generation is irrelevant and it does not give accurate information. So if you want accurate information on whether you are or are not getting a dog that is going to be more or less likely to shed, you need genetic testing and generation is entirely irrelevant and, and you want a breeder that understands the genetics and works with them in every generation. Do you have any suggestions about how someone could find, I mean, obviously I would highly recommend either of you as breeders, but you can't provide dogs to people in the, you know, in the whole world. So do you have any suggestions for how people could find breeders like that? Uh, um, or what kinds of, of question, what kind, yeah, what kind of question would you ask to sort of suss out whether they knew what they were doing? Maybe just ask if they, if they do genetic coat testing. I'd want to ask yes. if they did it and, and see the tests, you know, see yeah. that they have tests. I like to see the test results for each of the parents. Yeah. And a lot of the laboratories will just give you a link that you can give out to people to have them go in and just see the whole panel that's been done. You can see their health testing as well as their coat traits. And so and if can I, either if you are, oh yeah, go ahead, Jake. Uh, I, I want to mention something else that I think is important for the health of our breeds, and that is the impact of breeding for color. But I, I want to mention also that breeding for color will reduce the gene pool and also breeding against specific colors or breeding out specific colors, unless you have a reason to think there's a health concern, also artificially reduces the gene pool. So um, breeding for and against color are both, in my book, breeding for color, and they do have impact on the population. Right. And that's for purebreds too, not just the crossbreds. Yes, anybody. Yeah. Absolutely. But, yeah. Excellent points. And genetic diversity is, is so important. So, and there's, yeah. we already have some, some podcast episodes about that and looking to maybe do some more in the future. So, okay. So if you are either a, a puppy seeker trying to understand the health testing results that this breeder has given you, or if you're a breeder trying to figure out how to 
breed for specific coat types and you've listened to this podcast and you're like, well, that's a good start, but gosh, it feels really overwhelming. And I wish that there were a course for me to take where I could really sit down and absorb all of this. Where might you go? Oh, I know a place. Do you? Um, we have a course out on color genetics for breeders. Um, it's on the midwifery site at learn.midwifery.com, M-I-D-W-O-O-F-E-R-Y. Um, and it's about a two, two and a half hour course. And we, we, um, go into all of the technical aspects of genetics, but we do it for the layperson. So we, we make it understandable for anybody. You do not have to have a college degree or a master's degree or a PhD in genetics to understand this stuff. And I would say that if you really need a low shedding dog and you're just looking for a puppy, it would probably be worth it to you to invest that two and a half hours so that you can go looking for a breeder who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And odds are after that class, you're going to know more about low shedding coats than most of the breeders you talk to. That sounds like an, an excellent research avenue. To me, it's always it's always good when you're looking for a dog to really nerd out for a bit on exactly what you're looking for, what your needs are. Yeah. Um, to be to be a dog nerd for a little while, if if not for your whole life, at least during the puppy process, the puppy finding process. Excellent. So I will put the URL for that website and that course uh, in the show notes so that it's really easy for people to find. Super. All right. Any, do you guys have any, is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered or any last, I think G had one, one uh, brief pet peeve she wanted to air. Are there any others? I have one. Go for it. I think that a lot of people, I'm just going back to the doodle community again. I think there are a lot of people who really love the look of the doodle and the popularity of the doodle, but they don't necessarily have either the capacity or just the the self-control to make themselves really care for that coat and put in all of that time and energy brushing and combing and brushing and combing. So I just wanted to put out there that those wire hair coats are a really good alternative if you know that a long-haired furnished coat is going to be too much for you to handle. The wire hair coats still are scruffy. They have the beard, the eyebrows, the mustache. They look like the scruffy little terrier face, but you don't have to go and get them haircuts every six weeks. And the brushing requirements are far less than a typical doodle would be. Just be ready because they're gonna shed seasonally. However, they won't shed anywhere near as much as a purebred Labrador would, for instance. So I just wish that they were more popular. I wish that more people knew about them and I wish that more people would seek them out because it's a better fit for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, a great sounds, point. Yeah, it sounds like a great compromise. Like when I learned about how hard it was to maintain some of those those fuller doodle coats, I was horrified. And I I, I I wouldn't I would not want to deal with that in my household. Yeah if, if somebody does want a, a doodle type um and, and they are concerned about the coat, you know, a multi-generational doodle for a breeder that breeds for um, improved coat traits, they are a lot better than some of the earlier generations because the breeders have had time to work on those coats. Mm -hmm. So in summary, find a nerdy breeder and be a nerd yourself. Yes. And uh, <laughs> that's the way to, to find the right dog for you. 
I yes. really appreciate both of you explaining all of this in so much detail. Um, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for having us. This was awesome. It was fun. Fabulous. All right. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Marta. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs. Mm-hmm.